me to your childhood when you stayed the night at a friend's house. Right? I only did that a few times as a kid. And one of the reasons why is because every time I slept over at a friend's house, there was this moment in the middle of the night. It was inevitable. It happened every time when I would get homesick. And I could never sleep well. And there was this little level of anxiety and restlessness. Uh, I just, I just couldn't, I couldn't get comfortable because I was longing to go home. I wasn't at home. And there was this predominant thought or question that I wrestled with when I was staying at someone's house, and that is this. When is my mom or dad going to come get me and take me home? Well, as Jerry mentioned, uh, in, uh, we are in our Planted series, and uh, we're reading through that, and we're reading through First and Second Kings. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to First Kings chapter 3. First Kings chapter 3, we also have the passages up online. We're going to start in, in chapter 3, but we're really going to do an overview of both of the books and kind of a summary, if you will. And we're going to see in just a minute that the Israelites, at the end of the of First and Second Kings, they're left asking the question, who's going to take us home? Uh, before we go any further, uh, let's pray. Will you pray with me? Father, I am so thankful for your love and your grace. And I am so thankful for this story and the message. Uh, you've used it to encourage my heart and my mind in the last several days, and so I just say thank you. And I trust that you, you have something for all of us, whether we're sitting here in the room, whether we're watching online. Lord, we, we want to hear from you today. So would you open our eyes and help us to see you? Would you open our ears and help us to hear your life giving voice, Jesus. Would you magnify the name of Jesus? Would you uh, remind us of the love of Jesus this morning? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, the books of First and Second Kings tells us the story of the long line of kings, hence the name, uh, of Israel, the kings of Israel. And the first king of Israel was Saul, and after him came, came King David. Uh, and after David... Uh, was King Solomon. And Solomon was David's son. And so at the end of David's life, he kind of passed the baton of leadership to Solomon. And like his father David, Solomon reigned for 40 years. Well, shortly after Solomon took the, thr took the throne, God comes to Solomon and he comes to him in a dream. And he says this, he makes him an offer. God offered to give Solomon anything he'd like. Can you imagine God coming to you and saying, uh, I'll give you anything you want me to, whatever, whatever you want to ask of me. I know I've got some kids in the room. Can you imagine, kids, uh, if your mom and dad came to you and said, will you just, uh, I'll give you whatever you want. <laughs> I'm a little nervous about what my kids might be saying right now at home as they're watching this. Um, but God comes to Solomon, and he says, what, 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 what do you want? And in chapter 3, verse 9, we see Solomon's answer. Here's how Solomon answers God. He says, so give your servant, Solomon's talking, he's talking about himself, give your servant, give me a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Verse 10, the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. And so Solomon starts off his reign uh, on the right foot. He humbly acknowledges his inability to govern and to rule well. He says, I can't do this. I can't do this, God. And if you've ever been in a new role or a new job, maybe you're a new parent or maybe you've been parenting for 20 years, you know that feeling, that sense of inadequacy, uh, that feeling in over your head. You think, I can't do this. Who, who can do this well? Well, Solomon humbly and wisely asked God for help. 
And so he asked God for a discerning heart, an ability to distinguish between right and wrong, or in a word, Solomon asked for wisdom. And God was pleased with this. And so God gave him great wisdom. And he also gave him riches and wealth as well. In fact, we're told later on that King Solomon was greater in wealth and riches and wisdom than any of the other kings on earth. And at first, Solomon puts all of his wealth and his wisdom to good use. Uh, in chapters 3, 4, and 5, the first few chapters there, we, we see him uh, examples of him making really wise choices and governing really well. Solomon goes on to write, uh, why, put his wisdom to, to writing. He writes the Song of Solomon. He writes uh, Ecclesiastes. Solomon wrote much of the book of Proverbs. Solomon was a great builder too. His most magnificent building project was the temple of God that he built in Jerusalem. And so in the first half of his rule, Solomon is putting together a pretty good resume. And things are going well. Israel is prosperous. They're becoming a great nation. They're experiencing peace. God protects them from foreign attacks and invasions. He writes books of the Bible. He builds a temple in Jerusalem where God's presence is going to come and dwell. So things are going well. But unfortunately, after Solomon builds the temple, things start to go south. And then following chapters, we see Solomon's downfall. Uh, the second half of his rule did not go as well as the first. He used forced labor to fulfill his building projects. He built a royal palace for himself, and he spends twice as much time building his own palace than he did building God's temple. He makes alliances with foreign kings and, and foreign nations, which was a no-no. Solomon starts amassing excessive amounts of everything. First, he, 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 uh, he acquires excessive amounts of horses and chariots in order to kind of build up his military. But that, God, that violated God's command to depend on him for security. He acquires excessive amounts of gold, gold and riches. In one year, get this, Solomon acquired 25 tons of gold in one year. That's two, ton, two tons a month. Like, that's a ton every two weeks. Like, where is he getting all this gold? Now, the gold itself wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but it was what was happening in his heart. We're, uh, we're told that Solomon uh, began marrying foreign women from the nations that God had specifically forbid the Israelites to intermarry. He even married one of Pharaoh's daughters. Can you imagine? We're told that Solomon ended up with 700 wives and 300 concubines. I'm not even going there. I'm just not going to go there. We're not even going to talk about that. But he did all of this in large part for political purposes. He was gaining power and some sense of influence. And so needless to say, the second half of his rule doesn't quite go as well as the first half. Now, fast forward to the end of his life. Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam takes over. And Rehoboam, his son, picks up where his dad left off. And he has poor leadership too. And it causes a great divide. Under Rehoboam's leadership, Israel divides. There's a civil war. It splits into two kingdoms, the north and the south. And the rest of the whole book of 1 Kings and the rest of all, and all of 2 Kings tells the story of all of the successive kings of Israel. There was 20 in the north, 20 in the south. Only a few of them were good. Most of them were unfaithful to God and ultimately evil. And so God eventually has enough and he allows the Assyrian Empire to invade and destroy the northern kingdom and the Israelites in the north are exiled. Then God allows the Babylonian Empire to invade the southern kingdom. And they destroy Jerusalem, and they destroy the very temple that Solomon built, and they carry the remaining southern 
Israelites into exile. And so most scholars believe that First and Second Kings, these two books, were written to the Israelites who had been exiled and were now living in foreign countries. And these two books were written to answer a basic question that they were wrestling with. How did we end up exiled? And who's going to rescue us? Well, to be exiled means to be forced out of your home, to be forced out of your land, to be forced out of your country and unable to return. Today, we typically reuse words like refugees or displaced uh, to describe someone living in exile. I, I was looking this week. Did you know that there are 80 million refugees living in exile in the world today? 10% of the population of the world is wandering around the world with no home. So the Israelites are forced out of their country and land. Well, how did this happen? How did they end up here? Well, the answer begins with Solomon. Let's go back to a pivotal point in Solomon's story. Right after Solomon builds the temple, he's halfway into his ministry, about 20 years in, halfway into his reign, if you will, and God came and appeared to him a second time. And in the second visit, the Lord speaks to Solomon about the covenant that God had made with his father David. And here's what, here's what God says to Solomon. As for you, if you walk before me, Solomon, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness as David your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised, as I promised David your father, when I said you shall never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. As I promised David, God says. This promise that God made David is really important to understanding the whole Old Testament story. And to be honest with you, this promise is important to understanding your story too. This promise is really important to your life and to mine. We're going to figure out why in just a second. A promise that God is referring to to David is actually a covenant. If you've been in church for a while, you, you, you've probably heard the word covenant. We tend to think it's a biblical term, but it's actually not. The covenants were... Uh, common practice in the ancient world. Uh, one author, author of Epic of, Epic of Eden, dis, uh, defines covenant this way. She says, a covenant was an agreement between two parties in which one or both part makes promises, one or both parties, or uh, two parties in which one or both makes promises under oath to perform or refrain from certain actions and stipulations in advance. This is okay. So oftentimes the covenant, here you go, is an agreement between two parties or nations who had no previous relationship. And so they make a covenant with one another, and they form a new legally binding relationship with one another. In modern terms, it's basically a contract. It's a, a legally binding relationship, right? In a contract, two parties agree to a certain set of actions, and a contract creates this new relationship, like with a marriage or with the adoption of a child. The parents and the child legally enter into a new relationship with one another. And as a result, the parents get the rights and the privileges of being a parent to this child and vice versa. The child gets the rights and privileges of being a child to the parents. And so in the Old Testament story, when God made a covenant with the Israelites, they would have understood this concept of covenant, right? They understood the language and the meaning and the purpose of it. And God actually made five covenants in the Old Testament. Let me see if you, do you remember these? What was the first one? The first one was uh, Adam. The second one was Noah, Abraham, Moses, the Mosaic Covenant that God made with Moses at Mount Sinai, gave the Ten Commandments, and David. That brings us to this promise that God made David, the promise that God is referring to and reminding Solomon of. 
When David was king, he made Jerusalem the capital city. And David reigned as king there in Jerusalem. And at one point, he goes to God, and he basically says, now that Israel has a home here in Jerusalem, why don't you let me build a house for you here, a temple for your presence to dwell among your people? And God says, well, thank you very much. That's a very kind offer of you, but no. He says, instead, David, I'm going to build you a house. You read about this in 2 Samuel God says, I'm actually going to build you a house. And here's a summary of that promise that God makes David. He says, your house, David, the house I'm going to build for you and your kingdom will endure forever. Will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God makes a promise to David. He says, I'm going to build you a house, an eternal home, and I'm going to establish a kingdom for you, a land, a city, a nation, a place to live forever. And God provides, promises to provide a throne where he's saying a king will rule and govern and, and lead those people and provide care and protection for the people and for that land forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That's what God promises David. He goes on to say, David, this king that's going to rule over this land and this place that I'm going to give you, he's going to be a descendant of yours. He's going to come from your family tree. He's going to bear your name. Well, that brings us to Solomon, right? Remember, Solomon was David's son. And so the obvious question is, is Solomon the one who's going to fulfill God's promise to David? Now, with that in mind, let's go back to that, that appearance that God made to Solomon. Here's what he said. God said to Solomon, as for you, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David, your father, when I said you shall never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. So, I want you to notice the if. He says if. This covenant, this promise that God makes David has a conditional clause. If you walk before me faithfully, then I promise I'll do this. But if you don't, Solomon, I'll promise I'll do this. If you or your descendants turn away from me, and do not observe the commands and decrees I've given you, and you go off to serve other gods and worship them, I will, I promise you, Solomon, I will cut off Israel from the land I've given them, and I will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among the peoples. So here's God reminding Solomon of this promise that he had made right after he finishes building the temple. So David wanted to build the temple, and God, in his mercy, said, you know what, I'm actually going to let your son build it. And so Solomon builds the temple. He, Solomon gets done building it, and God comes to him and says, now listen, everything's going fairly well. You've just built a temple for me. Let me remind you of the promise to your, I made to your son David. If you will remain faithful to me, I promise to you, I will make sure your kingdom uh, reigns forever. God is rooting for Solomon. God is for him. He wants him to succeed. God wants him to be successful. But unfortunately, Solomon does exactly what God told him not to do. God warns Solomon, don't go serve and worship other gods. And here's the answer to that question. How did they end up in exile? It all started with Solomon's idolatry. We talked a little bit about idolatry on Palm Sunday. It shows up again here in Solomon's story. There's a reason why the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods besides me. 
If sin is turning away from God, then idolatry is serving and worshiping the gods we turn to. If sin is turning away from God, then idolatry is worshiping and serving the other counterfeit gods that we turn to. Pastor and author Tim Keller wrote a book on idolatry. It's called Counterfeit Gods. Here's how pastor and author, here's how he, uh, Keller defines what an idol is. Here's what a counterfeit God is, he says. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Simple enough. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. A counterfeit God is anything so central to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, whatever that is, fill in the blank, if I have that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning and significance. Then I'll have value and I'll feel significant and secure. Keller goes on to highlight four basic major categories of idolatry that we fall, we, 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 we fall into. Love, money, success, and power. There are others, but these are the big four. Now, these are in and of themselves not bad things. Okay? Keller says, oftentimes what we do is, idolatry is when we take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing. Or idolatry is when we take a gift of God's, a gift that he gives us. Solomon, most of the things that Solomon turned to for idolatry were gifts from God. But the mistake we, we make is we begin to worship the gift instead of the giver. Or here's how Paul says it in Romans chapter 1. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. And notice that idolatry begins with believing a lie. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. When we believe, Satan comes to us and he whispers lies to us. And his primary strategy is that he whispers lies to us about God. He lies to us about God. That's what he did with Adam and Eve. That's what he does with us. He lies to us about God. And when we believe one of his lies, it's like we drop the truth from our hands and we go and pick up the lie. And that lie leads us into idolatry, leads us to counterfeit gods. And Satan's lie can almost always be summarized in three words. God is unfaithful. All of Satan's lies can be summarized into one phrase, God is unfaithful. He can't be trusted. You can't trust him. When we believe that lie, when we doubt God's faithfulness, when we don't trust God's leadership, that's when Satan comes in and he tempts us to turn to a counterfeit God. He says, here, turn to this God. Let this provide the leadership that you're not going to get from the one true God. And so each time Solomon turned to one of these counterfeit gods, he was in essence saying to God, I don't trust you, God. I don't trust your faithfulness. I don't believe that you're going to keep your promises to me. Well, how does God respond to Solomon's unfaithfulness? God did just what he promised Solomon he would do. He says this, the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon, the very thing he told Solomon to do, although he forbidden Solomon to follow other gods. Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly keep my promise and I will tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. God said to Solomon, because you follow the gods, because you haven't kept my covenant, I'm going to tear it away from you. Now, let's go back to the covenant issue for a minute. In the ancient world, 
There were two basic kinds of covenants that took place, took place between, between nations or people groups. And here's where it gets really interesting. The first kind of covenant was between two equal parties. And so uh, this is where the nations were equal in power and wealth and, 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 and so forth. But the second kind of covenant was between a, between a stronger nation or people and a weaker nation or people. And this kind of covenant, in this kind of covenant, the stronger party could re be referred to as Lord or Father. And the weaker party would be referred to as the servant or the son. Isn't that good? As part of the covenant agreement, the stronger party or the Lord had authority over the land and the people living in it. And the Lord always took responsibility for providing protection for the servants. The Lord promised to defend the weaker party, the servant, against any foreign attacks. In exchange, the agreement was that the weaker party or the servant would just promise to be loyal and faithful to this Lord. In essence, they were saying, they were saying, I won't look to anyone else to do for me what you have promised to do for me. So can you see why Solomon's unfaithfulness angered the Lord? And again, God kept his promise, and so God tore the kingdom from Solomon, and he actually did it while uh, Solomon's son was king. And that's when that kingdom, the kingdom was divided into two, and we see the series of unfaithful kings that followed. And so despite all of Solomon's wisdom, despite his wealth and power, despite a successful first half of his rule as king, it was his idolatry and his unfaithfulness that ultimately led the Israelites into exile. And it left the people living in exile wondering, who's going to rescue us from captivity? The Bible, the Moody Bible commentary says it this way, although all of the kings of Judah and ultimately, uh, all, although all of the kings, which you can read about in First and Second Kings, of Judah had ultimately failed to fulfill the Davidic promise, the implication is that the people should keep looking forward for the Messianic king, the greater son of David. God made a promise to David that one of his descendants would remain faithful. One of his descendants, one of his kings would remain faithful and he would reign forever. And thankfully here in 2021, we're not waiting for him anymore. We know who that king is. That king's name is Jesus. Jesus is the faithful king who fulfilled God's promise to David. And Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, Hebrews tells us. And yet he never turned away from his father. Jesus never turned to worship or serve any other gods. Jesus kept the covenant. And not only that, but the good news is, Jesus introduced a new covenant. And did you know the word for covenant is also, uh, can be translated testament? So the Old Testament is actually the Old Covenant, and the New Testament is actually the New Covenant, and that Jesus is the initiator and mediator, uh, mediator of the New Covenant. Here's how the author of Hebrews uh, describes it in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. He's the one who brings the new covenant. That those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Now, Let's hold this here for a second. Listen. So the God's Old Testament covenants was always between him and his people. Here, Jesus steps in the gap. And Jesus becomes the mediator, and Jesus is both faithful to God, and now he's faithful to us. And he initiates the new covenant. And with the new covenant comes a new promise. And what's that promise? It's the promise of an eternal inheritance. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that in Christ we have the riches of his glorious inheritance made available to us. 
What are some of those riches? Paul says we've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. We've been chosen. We've been redeemed. We've been adopted. We've been forgiven. We've been included. And Paul says God has lavished the riches of his grace on us. And you know what the best part of this new eternal inheritance is? We get to go home. Paul goes on to write in Ephesians chapter 2, remember that at the time you were separate from Christ. You were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. This is what exiles are. Exiles are without hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Listen to those words, separate, excluded, foreigners. You see this? When Adam and Eve sinned, they were separated from God. They were forced out of their home. They were forced out of their land. They were exiled into a foreign country, and they had no way of returning. This is the story of the human race. This is your story and mine. We are the exiles. We're living in a foreign land. But God loves us too much to leave us in our captivity. The Bible says we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve death, separation from God. We're all exiles living in a foreign land. But God loved us too much to leave us in exile. He couldn't bear the thought of us wandering apart from him. And so he left heaven and he came to rescue us. That's why we celebrated Easter. The good news is that Jesus came to bring us home. And Jesus offers us a new covenant, a new promise, and a new agreement. And here's the deal. Jesus says, I'll be your Lord, and I'll be your king. And while you're here on earth, I promise I'll take care of you. I'll always be with you. I will provide for you and protect you, and I will defend you against enemy attacks. And I promise that I have an eternal inheritance awaiting you. I will prepare a place for you, Jesus says. I will provide a city and a kingdom for you, and we will be together, and my kingdom will endure forever and ever and ever. Isn't that good news? That's a good covenant. That's a good agreement. That's the best deal humanity has ever been offered. The new covenant is the promise that Jesus promises to bring us home. Ephesians 2.19, Paul goes on to write this. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. See, listen, it was Solomon's unfaithfulness that led the people into exile. It's Jesus's faithfulness that leads us back home. So what's our part? Well, in this new covenant agreement, Jesus, the King and the Lord, he asked his servants, his followers, to place our faith and trust in him. We place our faith in Jesus's faithfulness. And the best thing is that when we do that, his faithfulness gets credited to our account. And he now treats us as if we were as faithful as Jesus was. And he promises to bring us home. And here's how the author of Hebrews says it in chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, he says, hold tightly. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Hold tightly without, without wavering. I don't know about you, but I, I can sense, it feels like sometimes on a daily basis, maybe weekly, monthly, sometimes seasons of life, it's more intense than others. When my faith in Christ, I'm tempted to waver. 
Maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe today there's something in your life that's causing you to doubt God's faithfulness. Maybe the enemy is whispering to you, God is unfaithful. You can't trust him. Maybe you're struggling with some physical pain or some health issues. Maybe it's a financial or a career issue. Maybe it's a difficult relationship. It doesn't matter what it is. When pain and suffering comes into our life, we are tempted to doubt the faithfulness of God. When things don't go our way, we, when things don't go the way we want them to, or things don't go the way we thought they would, or our prayers go unanswered, we can be tempted to waver in our faith. Let's let the author of Hebrews encourage us today. Let's hold tightly to Jesus' faithfulness. Let's hold tightly to Jesus' faithfulness. Jesus can be trusted. He will keep his promises. God is good. And just a point of clarification. Jesus never promised that everything in this life will go the way we want. That's not where his primary promise lies. Our faith isn't in this life turning out the way we want it to. Our faith is in our eternal inheritance that awaits us. In the next chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, faith is defined for us. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for. Faith is an assurance about what we do not currently, presently see. We're trusting in some future thing, some future good that's coming to us. That's what faith is. Our faith in Jesus today as Christians is just a placeholder, if you will, for the eternal inheritance that he has promised to give us. It's kind of like, as Christians, our faith in Jesus is like riding on an airplane. <laughs> you may have heard this analogy before, but this life, this world we're living in is temporary. This life, this world is not our home. This is not our final destination. It's like we're living on an airplane. We're on our way to our true home. We're headed for our final destination, and it's going to be paradise. Have you ever noticed that whenever you're on a plane ride and you're flying to a, a vacation destination, let's say you're going to a beach somewhere or something, that you get, when you're on the plane ride, you're filled with joy and excitement. My question is this, why is it when you're on the plane that you're filled with joy and excitement? What gives you that joy and excitement while you're sitting on the plane? It can't be that, it can't be the, the stuff on the plane is, is, is bringing you joy and excitement. There's nothing on the plane that's really worth getting excited about, right? I mean, the seats are cramped. There's the constant noise of the engines. There, the snacks aren't satisfying. There's drinking from plastic cups. It just ain't, isn't very, uh, very glamorous. You're breathing stale air. The person sitting next to you stinks. They clearly didn't take a bath before they got on this plane. <laughs> so why are you filled with joy and excitement while you're sitting on that plane? Because it's in your future destination. The joy and excitement you have while sitting on the plane doesn't come from the plane itself. It comes from the future. The joy and excitement you're carrying with you today as a Christ follower is a future joy. You're just getting a little bit of a taste of it now, a foretaste. You're carrying a small portion of it now. Your faith is a placeholder for the joy and the excitement that you're going to fully experience in our future destination. 
Listen, God does give us lots of gifts in this life to be thankful for and to enjoy. I am thankful for my wife and my children. I'm thankful for my family and my friends. I'm thankful for the ways that God has been faithful to me and takes care of me and provides me, provides for us. I'm thankful for the ways that God works in our lives. But the gifts in this world, they will pale in comparison when we get to the future destination. When we get there, it'll be like all the gifts in this world, we were eating peanuts. Like we were sitting in cramped seats. We were breathing stale air. We were sitting next to some smelly guy. Compared to the future destination, listen, maybe you're struggling in your faith today. Maybe you need some strength to endure what you're facing I realized this week that our strength to endure the challenges of this present life come from our future inheritance. It's in Hebrews chapter 12 where Jesus said, where it says that about Jesus, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy that set before him, he endured. What gave Jesus the power and the strength to endure all of the pain and suffering in this life and ultimately the cross? Where were his eyes looking and fixed while he was living here on earth? His eyes were fixed on the joy before him. And you know what that joy is? It's the day when he gets to be with you and with me and the day that he gets to reign and rule over us and take care of us. It's the day when our, 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 the, the family of God, the kingdom of God will reign and live forever and ever and ever. That was the joy that Jesus was looking forward to. Let's do the same. Let's trust Jesus' faithfulness. He will deliver on his promise. He is going to bring us home. He is going to give us an, et- an eternal inheritance that is more than we could ever imagine. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your love and your grace. I am so thankful that in your grace and in your mercy, even though we sinned against you and we turned away from you and separated from you and we were forced out of our home and even though we're living as exiles in this foreign land, living in captivity, we have the promise that you're going to come and return. We have the promise of forgiveness. We're told in Ephesians chapter 1 that you've given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. You've chosen us and redeemed us and forgiven us and you've adopted us and you've included us and you have an eternal inheritance awaiting us. You have a place, you're preparing a place for us and we believe, we trust today that you're going to return and take us home. Lord, would you help us as a church family find our joy and excitement, not in this plane, but in the internal, eternal inheritance that you've promised us. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.